What happens when a work of art isn't made by the artist we thought? Is it fake? Or is it a question of attribution? We'll be looking at several works in the university's toy collection that raise these questions, and they are all inside the collection. Welcome to the Collection Podcast. My name is Chloe Midgulchi. Last week, we discussed items that are fakes and forgeries, but the term fake is more difficult when it applies to art. Fake implies intention, and like the items of last week, they are made to pass as real. There are certainly some fakes out there, but you need to be careful with those sort of... Um, a fake is quite a sort of distinct type of... Of work. This is Tico, who we will be hearing from later in the episode. What is considered a fake artwork often is real, but it is more a question of authorship, which brings me to the title of this episode, Attribution. Attribution aims to match the right artist with an artwork, and oftentimes it is very complicated. Today we will be narrowing our focus to the Tory Collection, a collection of important artworks donated by Sir James Erskine, third baronet of Tory. Within it are several works whose attributions have been called into question, some of which are still under scrutiny. Here to introduce the Tory collection is Neil Lebeter. My name is Neil Lebeter. I'm the curator of the university's art collection and deputy head of museums. A lot of British national collections um, are kind of centred around one or two major Victorian bequests. So there tends to be, or there was this great um, fashion for Victorian uh, philanthropic giving in the kind of early 19th century so the Tory collection is our equivalent of that um, so it's a collection of predominantly Dutch and Flemish landscapes and seascapes and a smattering of Italian Renaissance bronzes within it as well the best of the Tory collection it's like the the university art collection generally the best of it is really the real deal like it's among the best of any type of collection in the country um, so the, the university's art collections existed for a lot longer than the Tory collection has, but that was the, the gift of that very kind of bespoke, um, subject-specific, genre-specific uh, collection was the thing that is essentially the seed for the university art collection as we understand it now. So it remains one of the most important parts of the collection. It's the most well-known, most well-researched, um, and most uh, well-displayed part of the collection. If you haven't guessed already, the Tory collection is the crown jewel of the art collection. So there's three or four uh, works in the Tory collection which would be, um, I mean, they're among the most important of their type in Scotland and arguably Britain in a few cases. And then for the, the art collection, generally those things are our most important, um, most important pieces. These pieces include Jacob Van Rysdale's The Banks of a River, Adrian de Vries's Cain and Abel, and Gian Bologna's Anatomical Figure of a Horse, which is an extremely popular item in the collection, but one that raises a few questions. We call it the Jambalonia horse, and we still call it the Jambalonia horse. Um, that the attribution of that work is less clear cut, and has been um, disputed. It has been disputed for decades that there's been um, conversation about whether this work is it's referred to um, as Circle of Jambalonia. So we we don't say that it's his hand was there directly um, but 
we have it dated as 1585. There's been arguments that it's uh, a work of the 1700s. So there has been more research done in it recently, which is not conclusive. So this is an, an answer to something we may never have. We may never have the definitive, this is definitely this person. Is there any doubt or possibility that it is from a different time period or of a different artist entirely? There is. Um, so the, the argument for it being in 1700, basically this whole thing kind of um, revolves around the uh, Ruini, the Carlo Ruini book plates, um, which was one of the first kind of printed histories of equine anatomy. Ruini's plates were published in 1598. So the argument for the Jean Bologna horse being from 1585 is that Ruini used either the wax, Jean Bologna wax, or one of the bronzes as study for his book plates. Um, the style of the horse, so it's in two or three of the book plates, that there is this, the horse is exactly the same in pose and everything, it looks identical. Um, the argument for it being from the 1700s, which was made by an academic called Bent Sorensen, is that the horse is derived from the book plates and not the other way around. Duncan Macmillan makes the, the argument that that's really not satisfactory to say that this amazing kind of bronze horse is derived from a two-dimensional book plate. I, I agree to, with that to a certain extent because it's... Um, yeah, the book plates are from various angles, so it makes far more sense for the three-dimensional object to exist first and be based around that rather than the other way around. And just the accuracy of the horse's anatomy is, yeah, it it's, seems the other way around for that to be. But again, it's whether we will ever find out whether it actually matters. And that really is the big picture question. Does it matter? Does the name or the era affect the overall artwork? For the John Bologna horse, it is a visual spectacle and one that remains an important artwork and teaching tool for the university. I think the thing that kind of underlines it all is that it's still, either way, hugely important. In some senses, it doesn't actually matter whether it's from the 16th century or the 18th century. It's still a very, very important piece of art. Um, anatomically, is um, staggering in its accuracy in some respects. We had um, a class on it this year um, as part of our teaching with the art collection and we brought in a vet to look at it, so we, to teach it from a completely different angle. And he was amazed just with the level of detail and that kind of level and detail reproduced in bronze is actually really difficult because bronze is a really dull material. You wouldn't normally um, display an anatomical model in that way. Um, but the horse, which we didn't know before, um, has anatomically uh, accurate sweat glands running down the side of its head. And he was pointing out all of the, like some features are really accentuated and some are left. But the parts that are there, like the veins where they are positioned in the legs, the head, that's how we still consider them now. So at the very least, there was real anatomical weight behind this piece. It's completely appropriate within what was happening at Florence at that time that the move from anatomical study from which was predominantly the human body 
to equine anatomy was happening. So in some cases, in some senses, it fits perfectly into the time period that we're saying. The John Bologna horse benefits from continual conversation and research. Though it isn't 100% verifiable, there is a high level of confidence that the attribution it was given when it came to the collection is correct. Other pieces we will find present more challenges. While there are really kind of active ones, like the Jambalonia, which are um, relevant to the point that we're still talking about them hundreds of years later, so there's something in them. There are other attributions that were just way off right from the beginning. So the Jan Levens, um, which itself is, you know, it's an important painting um, in the collection. Uh, it throws up the, the issue of some of the attributions in the Tory collection generally. As Neil points out, the Tory collection presents quite a few issues with attribution, many that are still in question and are currently being researched. Liv Rothfuss and Tina David are two master students in the Art and Global Middle Ages program who have been examining the Tory collection through their course. Um, so the class that we're in, where we're looking at fakes and forgeries for our specific exhibition, is the University Art Collections Project, um, which essentially is a class um, where we put on an exhibition at the end of the year uh, that's around the Tory collection, which is one of the collections of the university. It's kind of like the, the jewel, I guess, of the university. Um, and then our exhibition is to kind of prove that it's not really <laughs> not that much of a jewel, since there's a lot of... Mm -hmm. um, pieces in the collection that are not what they think they are. What Liv, Tina, and many others have found is that the works of the Tory collection have been misattributed, and these misattributions are especially evident in the collection's Dutch works. Um, and a lot of that comes down to just our, our historical uh, discourse is just a lot better now. We understand a lot more um, than was maybe when the Tory collection was here who was originally cataloguing the Tory collection um, may not have had as such a keen eye as some other people. Um, but it was certainly common outside of the Tory collection generally, it was certainly common um, for Dutch work of this time coming into collections. It's basically you presume it's Rembrandt until someone tells you otherwise. So the Jan Levens and there's a few others, the, the Sagers that we have in the collection were both originally listed as Rembrandt's. Um, they're clearly not. <laughs> Even a non-specialist like myself in this area can see. You're probably wondering how these disparate works could have all been labeled as Rembrandt, and more strangely, how one person like James Erskine could have collected so many presumed Rembrandts. We know very little about um, his collecting, a, big, a relatively big set for the Tory collection. It was the Getty Provenance Index. So Getty commissioned this huge study and how they actually went about doing it, I don't know. Um, they gathered up all the sale catalogues from European auction houses um, and it's all in this database online now, um, which is such a, an amazing resource for researching the provenance of any work. It's the first place you go. Um, so Erskine does appear in some, but it's like a tiny fraction of the collection that we can actually place what it did tell us about um, Erskine that we didn't know before was that he was a bit of a wheeler dealer. He would buy and sell in equal measure. So he was buying up a lot of works, just the arts that were really just fashionable in Britain at the time, like Dutch art was really fashionable in England particularly. Um, and people, well, it was the, the Prince Regent really set the, the taste of that time and he started to move into collecting predominantly Dutch and Flemish works. So everyone kind of followed him. 
Now this brings about several key points. The first is that Dutch artwork was very fashionable. As we discussed last week, the desire to collect often outweighs the need to verify. Someone like Erskine would have bought and sold many Dutch works, and the fact that so many pieces could have passed through his hands makes their provenance much more difficult. As Neil pointed out, this trend was set by taste of the Prince Regent, whose collection, as you might have guessed, includes Rembrandt's. Rembrandt was a recognizable name and probably a profitable one too, so it's unsurprising that his name became ubiquitous for art sold at the time. But if you look at the sale, like mm -hmm. if you just look at the provenance, there's like every year there's so many Rembrandts that are just like being sold. Like we were looking through it and we're like another Rembrandt, another Rembrandt. So it's kind of, yeah, it's definitely weird. They just kind of use the term Rembrandt mm -hmm. like as an umbrella term for everything that was being produced. Um, and even though like stylistically like they look totally different if you just compare the Levens to the Sayers and the fact that they were both considered Rembrandts it's That's like you have to be out of your mind to think that the same I mean not that it's not possible but they're really really different I mean mm -hmm. really different. Though Rembrandt was a catch-all term for Dutch Baroque art this isn't to say that the attribution to the wooded walk painting wasn't entirely unfounded. Levens and Rembrandt were contemporaries both born in Leiden within a year of each other, and they both were trained by Peter Lastman. It is rumored that at one point they even shared a studio together. As Liz will explain, Liebens and Rembrandt share quite a link. It is argued that they shared a studio. There's lots of written work on like if they did, if they didn't, if they were some walking distance. But especially with their early work, when comparing them, there's a lot of the same subjects, and they're depicted very similarly. So it's really hard actually to tell them apart in the beginning who did who's, you know, especially since they're trained under the same artist. I can um, see how maybe the Levens was attributed to Rembrandt just based on their similar techniques. But even at that point, I think his style was a bit different because I think it's a later work. But from my memory of what happened, Levens after death went to obscurity, whereas Rembrandt got more famous longer he was dead. And so by the early part of the 19th century, I think there was this resurgence with popularity in Rembrandt. Really, the fact that Rembrandt's so big is kind of how Levens has become well-known because there was all these retrospectives and they started pulling out works of Levens um, and realizing they weren't Rembrandt's. The same was the case for the Tory collection's The Wooded Walk, which was exhibited as a Rembrandt in the 1830s. Shortly after, the attribution changed to Jan Levens, but even now that attribution is still shaky. Even with it being Levens, it's not cast iron at all. One of the reasons that it is is that there's a very similar work um, by Levens that is signed in a collection in Berlin. So the two pieces are arguably comparable and by the same artist because there's a very um, formally similar work elsewhere. So that's one of the things that you can do in that kind of stylistic analysis. And then there's the dog. Uh, the, the, the sheep. sheep. The, the sheep. dog? Yeah, I the think weird. it looks like a sheep too. I think that's that's got to be a bad thing when you look at an animal in a painting and you don't even know what animal it is. That's, <laughs> that's, you've fallen at the first hurdle there. Yeah. <laughs> so the kind of, the, the composition is very successful in some respects. So you have this uh, wooded path, you have some, uh, a couple walking down it, they're kind of beautifully bathed in certain light and then there's um, two people sitting by the edge of the path and it's all quite satisfying. Right smack bang in the middle of the canvas is this dog that is terrible. Like it's a formally bad dog. Like it's been really poorly painted. 
and you kind of look at it and you think, why would the artist have done this? Like any artist, but like Jan Lievens is of the, the kind of Dutch school, a very highly regarded painter. Um, or also, I mean, it was very common for uh, landscape artists to employ other artists to paint in the figures. And Rysdale did that with Banks of a River. The, the uh, figures were painted in by someone else. Maybe they just got a really bad other painter to do it, just couldn't do dogs. Uh, so there's still some kind of questions hanging around about that work. Um, but that that kind of stuff is, I really like that personally. I think the quirky um, thing that makes it slightly unusual and slightly weird uh, and funny or whatever, um, yeah, it just retains interest, I think. When you look at this thing, and oh, it's lovely. And then you look in the middle, it's like, no, that's, yeah, terrible dog. <laughs> so yeah, yeah Levens needs to be better at painting dogs. Despite the dog, the attribution to Levens still sticks. Yeah, the, the attribution is stuck though. It has stuck as Levens and our most recent um, kind of research into the collection again, um, which was done by Sotheby's has kept it as leaving. So there's no one really arguing against it. And it is just because this other work exists elsewhere that is so similar. So it may have been a preparatory piece for the thing that's in Berlin, for example. But the problem that we have with it, our leavings is that it's not signed. Um, so that does kind of open it up to question. Signatures play a really significant role. In another conversation, Neil brought up a really interesting case of a signature that was added to a work to make it more valuable. Going to the fair, by Pablo Picasso. It's one of the most important uh, pieces in all of the university art collection. So it's an early work on paper. Um, so Picasso was around 18 years old when he made this. It was made in Barcelona before he moved to Paris. So this is pre-Blue uh, period. So for us, this is a very important work, but for collections generally in Britain, this is really important. And there's not very many things similar like it. Um, the thing that makes it more unusual, and this was something that we discovered very recently when uh, Professor Neil Cox, who's a Picasso expert, was giving a class on this particular work. So he uses it quite often uh, on his regular teaching on Picasso, was that he essentially dropped into conversation very casually that this signature is too late for this work. So I was initially totally devastated, thinking, oh my God, <laughs> this is not a real Picasso. How can it be? signed later than the thing is actually when it was actually made because it's dated from 1900. Um, so Picasso up until like 1901-1902 he was uh, signing either Pablo Ruiz Picasso or P. Ruiz Picasso. It's not till later that he develops that flourish of his signature that uh, we've all become very familiar with and it, it has a bit of a an evolution uh, to that very familiar signature that we all know. So what has happened with this work is that much, much later, so we think in the late 50s, um, this has been put under Picasso's nose by a previous owner and said, sign this, please. So he's added the signature much later. And when you know this, and when Neil um, mentioned this in his class, it makes so much sense. And we hadn't really noticed it before because when you look at it now, the signature's on top left-hand corner, which is very unusual. It sticks out a mile, like the actual, um, we think the, the medium, so if this is uh, a pastel of some kind, it's very different to the other pastels that are used in this work. It sticks out 
and it's also across another area of blue, which would be a very unusual thing to do. It's quite large also as well. So Picasso, because he was making so many of these pieces when he was a young artist, he probably didn't sign any of them. Um, so this is, this remains a genuine Picasso, but with a genuine later signature of him 60 years later. In this particular case, given that presumably his works on paper are recognizable by the late 50s when it sold that um, it's still under question unless there is a signature. Like the signature is kind of the, the end all be all of saying this is a Picasso or selling it as a Picasso. Because, yeah, you're right. Because as you see in the work itself, it doesn't look like a Picasso. It doesn't look like what we would understand, you know, that post 1906. Um, yeah, from blue period onwards, when they're very recognisably Picasso. There are elements of it here that are, um, that kind of show a kind of formation, but you wouldn't necessarily look at it without a signature and say that is definitely Picasso in a way that you would with other uh, more well-known works. So there's that. Um, there's also the notion of, so if this label on the back, which is slightly confusing as to exactly what has happened, but, but if it was signed by the artist in 1959, then sold in 1959, that would suggest that it was signed, then immediately put to auction or to sale, which would suggest that adding that signature added financial value to it. It certainly added um, an interest in terms of its story, and a, it's already a significant work with or without the signature, um, but it adds something else to it, and almost certainly that would have added financial value to it as well. So it seems from the provenance that it was signed, then immediately sold on. A signature and by extension a name are extremely impactful for a work of art and often dictate its value. They also serve as important tools for attribution. Such is the case for this next work, a landscape painting by Hercules Sagers, which was also first attributed to Rembrandt. It's interesting because it could have been one of the pieces by Sagers that Rembrandt owned which is, I mean, interesting because we know Rembrandt. We do, I, until I took this course, I didn't really know who Sayers was at all. Hercules Sagers is a very obscure artist, mainly because his paintings are quite rare. Sagers was a Dutch artist of the Dutch Golden Age who mainly specialized in printmaking. Though he did also paint, there are currently around a dozen known Sagers paintings in the world. Given the rarity of his work, the attribution of Sagers to the work in the Tory collection seems doubtful. The Sagers landscape is currently undergoing examination to investigate its attribution, and facilitating this project is Tico Seifert. I'm Tico Seifert. I'm the senior curator for Northern European Art at the Scottish National Gallery in Edinburgh. The Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam and the Metropolitan Museum in New York have joined forces to stage a big monographic exhibition on Hercules Sagers. In the course of the research for this exhibition, which is the first big one in about 50 years, I think, on this artist, they try to collect as much material as possible. Um, so they are also looking, I think we mentioned at some point that Seger's painted over is very, very small. We are talking about a dozen paintings because he was basically a printmaker. Um, so his paintings are very rare and colleagues from Amsterdam and New York were keen to explore and not only those but also um, have a look on the fringes of the oeuvre 
and that's where the picture from the Torrey collection came in uh, because at some point it was attributed to Seychas and as such um, colleagues were interested to have a look and see um, whether it might be indeed by Seychas. Looking at that painting um, you you cannot already see why people thought it might be Seychas but there's a lot of differences between there are a lot of differences between um, Seychas say secure corpus and, and body of work um, and that picture. This painting not only differs from the verified Sakers paintings, but as Tina points out, it is also dissimilar to his prints. Um, I think with Sayers, it's just, it, it's really difficult because he is a printmaker and his prints are, I mean, they're strikingly different. I don't know, like, I was shocked even myself doing research on him, how weird and also extremely beautiful his prints were. They can, they're really experimental and really dark and a bit haunting and then you still have that type of feel I would say in the painting so when you look at it there is that like haunting and that like isolation of it but stylistically I don't know it, it doesn't look the same and I think that this one when we did have the lecture with Tico he even said that this one the one in the collection is probably not a Sayers in comparison to the other works. There are many things that discern the Tory collection landscape from other Sakers. For starters, this painting isn't signed, and as we've discussed, signatures play a very important role in attribution. Tico explains the many aspects considered when evaluating this work. The thing is, of course, um, if, if you have this body of, of secure works, in this case, signed works, and there's no good reason to believe that these signatures are fake or later editions. There's no technical indication for that. And also because Sirius was not a very prominent artist, there wouldn't have been no good commercial reason to put the the signature on, you know, if it mm -hmm. wasn't genuine. That's very different with Rembrandt, of course, and you find loads of pictures that either have nothing to do at all with him or are copies or whatever who have his so well, it's not his signature, but a fake signature on. Um, to make them more sellable and, and more valuable. Um, but in Seger's case, you have this defined core oeuvre, and then you, just by, by means of visual comparison, you know, looking at what is painted, how is it painted, what are the materials, what are his techniques, what are the, say, the support, for example. Um, I mean, it's, it's all just pieces of evidence you don't really have one uh, thing that would, would clearly tell you unless there is something, say, uh, like a signature in, in, in this case. Um, there is no signature on the Torrey picture. So you would look at things like, um, is the landscape similar to, to those in the established body of uh, Sieger's work? Is the way it is painted similar to the way it is painted? Is the size of the panel, for example, similar to the ones we we know by Sierras? You know, all these. Um, you 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 go through this sort of list of 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 comparatives, and and then you come to some conclusion, perhaps, and and that's important because those conclusions, of course, you can then um, check against technical examination and the results from technical examination um, for example um, x-rays um, so you could look at the way he built up his his uh, paintings. Of these technical examinations the Tory landscape recently underwent dendrochronology. 
um, dendrochronology is a suitable means to ideally establish when a tree has been felled or when about a tree has been felled which then not necessarily means that's the year when the painter um, made use of the panel that came from that tree. So even if you come to a conclusion in terms of a felling date and uh, normally you, you would sort of have the, the wood seasoned for a while and then you need to take into account transport, um, panel making and so forth. So you would factor in a couple of years perhaps before you would then assume from the felling date to the actual date the painter used the panel. But that's of course very sort of, I mean there's no evidence for it. It's it's just you say you get from the dendrochronology an earliest felling date of 1650 and your artist died in 1620. You know that it's very unlikely, if not impossible, that he's the maker of that painting. And that was sort of the uh, approach um, for the Torrey picture that we thought, okay, if the dendrochronology would pose a date um, that lies out with the the living dates of Seychers that would exclude him automatically. There are more sophisticated um, um, ways to look at paintings um, fairly recently like Macro XRF and things which, which actually provide images of different layers of the painting. Um, I don't think there was any urge to do that with the Tory picture because it was uh, fairly clear from the outset that it isn't Seychers so the the colleagues um, thinking about their exhibition of course they they would very much like to include pictures that have not been identified as uh, Seychers or have been doubted and can be verified um, but in this case I think it was fairly clear it was basically just to make absolutely sure it's not Seychers so that they would not make a mistake um, in excluding it from their selection. Of all the works we discussed, the Tory landscape is probably the farthest from its current attribution. So the simple question here is, does that make a difference? To be honest, for the for the Torrey picture, I don't think it, it won't make a huge difference mm -hmm. because I think serious scholars in the field have not um, thought about this as a Seher right. in, in recent decades. So it is not really taken away from any secure body. You know, it was mm -hmm. somewhere on the fringes of, of in the past, of a still-to-be-defined body. But I think for the reception of the this particular painting, which unfortunately now is sort of without a proper name, that is a case where you think, OK, what are you going to do? I personally would perhaps still think, uh, put it on display, say what you know, um, and hopefully somebody comes along one day and says, oh, that looks very similar to this and that, and perhaps then you, you, you finally get, get back a name for an artwork. The even bigger question to pose is what happens when we find out something is misattributed? What happens to the work in terms of its value or how it is then received? There are a couple of things here. I mean, first of all, the artwork is completely untouched by that. You know, I mean, the artwork physically remains exactly the same, whatever attribution is put on it. 
Um, the reception, of course, or the perception of it may change considerably. People may walk past something which is not Rembrandt, um, but they may stop once they see Rembrandt's name on the label, you know. Um, in the trade, I've, I've hinted at that. Uh, it makes a huge difference simply in terms of um, the value of an artwork, um, which is not so important if the picture is in a public collection, you know. I mean, for us, we will never sell anything anyway. So um, anything that is linked to the value in terms of uh, de-attribution or a new attribution or something uh, doesn't really make a big difference for us. Um, I think you you need to be aware, though, that if you take a name away and do not have a new name, but just say, oh, it's Dutch 17th, mid-17th century or something, there is a certain risk that artworks then vanish from the radar. They may vanish from exhibition spaces, they may not be requested for loan exhibitions, they may not um, receive much attention in research and scholarly publications. So there, there is a certain risk of um, oblivion, you know, once you take a name away without replacing it with something that is more than anonymous. This also raises the question of what happens in an institution when the work is misattributed? Does the display change? Is the work treated differently? Neil explains these anxieties. I think the, um, yeah, you raise a very good point about how full-on institutions kind of take the notion of attributions changing. And obviously everyone's jumping up and down when it changes in a positive way. Um, and you find out you have some amazing thing that was wrongly attributed to a much lesser artist before as the good way. Um, it's more common for it to go the other way. Um, we have had them go the other way. So there's been bronzes in the Tory collection that were just thought to be um, standard you know, grand tour souvenirs, like bronze reductions that have turned out to be really quite significant um, sculptors, which is great. But I would like to think that we would embrace it just as much as if it went the other way. Tico explains his ethos as a curator and what happens in the Scottish National Gallery. In museums, you should be honest about these things, even if it was the other way around and something that was regarded as Master X has, has shown, has been shown not to be by Master X, but by someone unknown, well, let's let's say it. And we had cases in the past where at least attributions have been sort of, say, have been added a query. And, and we, we say so on the labels. And, and I think that's, we, we should share knowledge. And, and, and that's what, what it's all about here. As we've discussed, attribution is very difficult, and in many ways it can affect an artwork. Just because an artwork isn't by who we think or say it is, doesn't make it fake. And it doesn't make it any less important. In all cases, knowledge is the priority, and questioning an artwork's attribution helps us learn more about it. And that is really the true value of a work. Well, for me, frankly, if this goes on, uh, conversation around a work is always a good thing. Um, it keeps it interesting, like it keeps the whole thing current and shows that our art collection is still active if we're still thinking about it and if attributions change then fine, we embrace it.
and then they may change again in the future, but it shows that research is still happening and that, yeah, there's a reason for it being here. Works from the Tory collection, including the Jambalonia anatomical figure of a horse, Jan Levin's The Wooded Walk, Saker's Landscape, and the Picasso's Going to the Fair are all part of the research collection, which means that you can request to see them in person, either in their location or in the CRC's reading room, located on the sixth floor of the main library. While you're there, stop by the research suite, as that's where the Saker's Landscape is currently hanging. Livantina's exhibition on fakes and misattributions will be on display at the Talbot Rice Gallery from May 28th to June 5th. Finally, pay a visit to the Scottish National Gallery, where you can see many outstanding works, including Rysdale's Banks of the River of the Tory Collection. Images of the specific items from this episode, as well as previous episodes, are available at uoeartandarchives.tumblr.com. The podcast is also provided on the blog, so you can listen and follow along with the images. The Collection Podcast is a production of the University of Edinburgh and the Center for Research Collections. It is written and produced by Chloe McGulchy. Executive producer is Neil Leviter. If you'd like to know more about these items and other items in the collection, please visit the university's collection website at collections.ed.ac.uk. Better yet, you can see these items online at images.is.ed.ac.uk. My name is Chloe McGulchy, and as always, thank you for stopping by the collection. <laughs>